We have a special blessing this morning before we get into God's Word. Uh, if we're going to have Matt and Sarah Brocate come on up front here. Matt and Sarah and their family, Elijah and Gideon and, and Mom and Dad, are going to be, a, they've been doing a home Bible study in Ava, Missouri, and they're going to be starting their first Sunday morning service next Sunday. And so... We are going to pray for them. Yeah, I've had pastors call me from California and go, hey, do you have anything going on in Ava? Said, Where's Ava? You know, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I've had calls over the years. And so uh, finally, when these guys came out and, and the Lord laid on their hearts, hey, we want to do a work where, where nothing else is going on. I think that's great. And so, you know, we're going to lay hands on them. We're going to pray for them. The act of laying on of hands, it's, it's symbolic, really, of setting uh, someone apart for ministry, apart for, for service of the Lord. It's to impart to them, on them, a spiritual blessing. Shows that God is working through His ministers. In Acts chapter 6, seven men uh, became deacons when the apostles prayed and laid hands on them. So we're going to lay hands on them both. We're going to pray for them, God's blessing on them. And so uh, just join us in a word of prayer for them. Lord, we thank You just for your grace and mercy and your working in our lives. And uh, Lord, first and foremost, we want to thank you for uh, Matt and Sarah and our hearts to serve you. Lord, we thank you for their family, for Elijah and Gideon, Lord, and just for bringing the whole family out here, Lord, and for the work that you had pre-planned for them before they even left the, the West Coast, Lord, to come here and do this work. Lord, we ask that you'd fill them both with an overflowing of your Holy Spirit. Give both Matt and Sarah uh, just hearts filled with compassion for those that they would lead. Strengthen them to do the work that you've called them to do, Lord. Help Matt especially to, to be your mouthpiece, Lord, to speak your word boldly, unashamedly, with power and authority, knowing that as he does, Lord, you will do a powerful work there in that community. And Lord, we pray for the community of Ava that they would receive Matt and Sarah, their family, with a, a gracious welcome, a generosity of spirit, Genuine care for them, Lord. We pray that for both of them, Matt and Sarah would be faithful to the call that you placed in their lives, that you'd keep them holy and set apart, sanctified for your use, Lord God, that your blessings would be upon them for the work of the ministry that you've called them to do. And so, Lord, we send them out to serve you with your blessings and strength and, and just the encouragement uh, to do again that's what you've called them to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, we need a church in Marshfield and Columbia, so anybody, uh, God's called us to do, you know, so. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our study through the book of James. We're in James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand and Richard will get one right to your seat over here on my left. Um, I shared this first service. I've been going to a chiropractor. I've never gone to before, but I've been having some back issues and so the, the chiropractor adjusts my back, and, and then he sends me up a few stairs, and it's got this guy up there, and, and uh, about six foot two, and then he just stretches my body apart, and it is so painful. And he takes his elbow, and he puts it down in my muscle, and he's relaxing that muscle, and man, it just hurts. Just plain hurts. After it's all done, I go, oh, I feel better. That's kind of like what we've been doing through the book of James, okay? I, I commend you guys for being here. But week after week, it's that Holy Spirit elbow just going down in that, that spiritual muscles of ours and saying, hey, man, you, you need this. We need this. And week after week, we're, we're getting that. And so that's where we're at this morning. So um, uh, just no apologies ahead of time. I'm just saying I get hit first before you guys get hit. So here we go. James writes, starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? 
Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The title of my message this morning is When Faith Doesn't Work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word together. Holy Spirit, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives, Lord. Some of these words that we've been receiving, Lord, they're hard to hear, but we all need to hear them from time to time to remember, to recall in us the, the, the call that you've placed on all of our lives as believers. So, Lord, we ask your blessing upon our time together. We would have open ears to receive what you have to say to us individually, what you have to say to us as a church. We pray your, pray your blessing upon our children, Lord, as they are being taught your word downstairs in our children's ministry. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need to put their faith and trust in you this morning. Thank you for our time that we could spend together in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all might have heard of the story about a man who was like the evil Knievel of his day, he was known as the Great Blondin, a man who would do incredible feats for people, death-defying acts to dazzle the crowds. Well, one day the Great Blondin strung a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. Hundreds of people you know, showed up to see this event where he was going to walk across that tightrope to the other, uh, other side. A life-threatening situation. And as the crowds gathered, the Great Blondin stood before them and said, how many of you believe that I, the great Blondin, can walk across this tightrope to the other side? They all said, we believe, we believe. Well, he walked across the tightrope and he came back again. The people, they were all applauding. They were thrilled. Then he said, how many of you believe that I, the great Blondin, can not only walk across this tightrope and back again, but this time I can do it with a wheelbarrow pushing it? They said, we believe, we believe. And they yelled it even louder and louder because they wanted to see him do this. Then he said, how many of you really believe it? Oh, we really believe. There was one guy in the back that was kind of yelling a little bit louder than all the others. So Blondin pointed at him and said, okay, uh, then you get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> the guy was out of there. He disappeared. I think in the same way, that's how it is with a lot of people today. A lot of people say, oh, I believe, I believe. But how many of us are willing to get into God's wheelbarrow, so to speak? Sadly, there are those today who say they have faith, but they're willing to exercise that faith. So it doesn't matter what they say. The truth is their faith doesn't work. Many want to name the name of Christ, but they don't want to, what comes along with that with the name. It's a live, active faith. Many today have a, a pseudo-faith. It's not real belief as the Bible re would require. Now, the text we are looking at this morning it's one of the most controversial texts, really, in all the New Testament. Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. And that's because if it's not carefully understood, it can lead to serious error in the most important area of doctrine. What's the problem? Five words found in verse 26. Faith without works is dead. In fact, James's entire letter consists, as we've been looking at, the test of true faith, the practical fruits of of righteousness that should mark the life of every true believer in Jesus Christ. The kind of faith that's required by God of every man and of every woman. Certainly, we want to know what true faith is. Why? Well, because first and foremost, the Bible says we are saved by faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not out of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Secondly, we are to live the Christian life by faith. Hebrews 10, 38, now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And thirdly, without faith, we cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Therefore, it's of greatest importance that we understand what true faith is. Now, James is going to point out that there is a, a phony faith, a dead faith, a faith that's not real. You might even call it a devil's faith. 
James is going to show us that true faith, biblical faith, the kind of faith that God requires, is a faith that's always going to bring results. It's a faith that's going to show itself in its actions. For that reason, if you're taking notes, we'll be looking at three things this morning. Number one, a dead faith. Number two, a demonic faith. And number three, a dynamic faith. First and foremost, a dead faith. There's a comic strip I read of a picture of a conventional-looking church had their large sign out in front of the the, uh, church itself and and advertising their ministry. The sign read, The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 30-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws, everything you wanted in a church and less. Sadly, the experience of, that is the experience of so many churches today. No quickening of the conscience, no feeding of the mind, no opening of the heart, no commitment, no real faith. And this is what James is addressing here because just as we have this problem in our day, James had the same problem in his day. Many people who, who spoke the language of Christianity without reflecting the reality of its truth in their lives, they had a dead faith. See, people with a dead faith, they substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer, for testimony. They can even quote a few verses here or there, but their walk does not measure up to their talk. They think that their words are just as good as their works, and they're wrong. So because of this, James begins by asking a couple of rhetorical questions to make his point. Look at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can faith save him? Now, immediately, based off of that verse, the verses we just read, rather, in Ephesians 2, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11, we would say a resounding, yes, of course, faith saves a man. But really, James is asking a rhetorical question, and the answer in context is no. He's saying faith cannot save a man. Now, before you think that James is, is some kind of a heretic and he's off his rocker, understand what kind of faith James is describing. He's saying a faith that does not produce results will not save you because it's not real faith. That's a dead faith. It's a pseudo-faith. See, the issue here is not does faith save you. Of course it does. The issue does is, is does a phony faith, does a pseudo-faith, does a devil's faith save you? Absolutely not. Notice a key word that many often miss in trying to understand this section of Scripture. In verse 14, James asks the question, he says, if someone says he has faith. You might want to underline that word, says. James isn't saying a person has faith. He's saying a person claims to have faith. And a person who says they have faith but does not have works, it could be a dead faith. Now that one word, says, Speaks, speaks tragically, I believe, to the day and the age in which we're living. To those that, that are in, in many so-called Christian churches that claim to have faith in Christ, and yet they teach an habitual lifestyle of sin, that it's okay. They say they have faith, but in the same breath that they say that abortion is okay. They say they have faith, but in the same breath they say that God approves of the LGBTQ lifestyle. <coughs> Excuse me. Or promote gay marriage. I don't care what you say. The evidence is there by your lifestyle that your faith, in quotations, is a dead faith. If you say you have faith and you live absolutely opposite to what the Word of God says, then I question your faith. If you say you have faith and there's no evidence in your life of that faith, then I would question your faith. Because faith that produces no results cannot save you. It's not real. <coughs> Excuse me. It's like this. At Christmas time, you know, we get presents for the kids and their grandkids, quite a few of them. And my wife, she'll get up on her bed in her, in her bedroom and she can wrap presents like no one else. I, I mean, I do one, she's got five of them done. And it's just, just it's like, man, and it's done. But in order to really get in the mood, we, we put on some you know, Christmas music, and then we have this DVD uh, that we put on in the bedroom TV, and, and it's a DVD, it's about two hours long, it's of a, a fireplace burning a fire, in a fireplace, 
nice little mantle, and you can actually hear the crackling of the wood, you know, and, and the fire, and, and it was kind of kind of cool. And now I can, you know, and I have stood in front of the TV and pretended like I'm getting warm from the fire. I could even grab a stick, put a marshmallow on the end of that, and hold it in front of the TV, but it's not going to do me any good. Why? It's not real. It's only a recording of the real thing. It's not the genuine article. Listen, any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Our Spurgeon puts it, of what value is the grace I profess to receive it, Receive if it does not dramatically change the way that I live. If it does not change the way that I live, it will never change my eternal destiny. Or as we put it in the bulletin this morning, if you saw it by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, faith without works is not faith at all, but a simple lack of obedience to God. Spurgeon, Bonhoeffer, James, God's word says verbal faith alone doesn't cut it. If you think you're saved simply because you, you say you're Christian, Maybe you know the Ten Commandments, you can quote them. James is saying, that's not the case. Because if you're truly saved, you're going to have that heart to serve. You've experienced what Jesus has done in your life. You've been so blessed by it. Now you want to do unto others as God has done for you. You want to bless others because God has blessed you. But if you have that pseudo-faith, dead faith, then you're not going to have a heart to serve others. Your only heart you're going to have is to serve yourself. Now James uses a powerful illustration to to bring out his point. He recites a parable that many believe maybe was a common practice in the early church. And he asked his readers to imagine this scenario. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is saying, if someone comes to your door, the doorbell rings, and you open it to find that it's someone from your church, and they've hit some hard times, and the father says, we haven't had a bite to eat in days, so you bite him. No, that's an old joke. <laughs> the father says, hey, brother, we haven't had any food in, in several days. Can you help our family out? So you take the family into your living room, you get out your Bible, and you say, let's have a Bible study. And you start reading the passages that tell how God can make a way where there's no way. How he rained manna down from heaven to feed the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. How he miraculously fed the 5,000 people with loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And then you tell them, my God says God can feed you when you're hungry. He's a doctor when you're sick, a shepherd when you're lost, and a rock when you're in the midst of storms. My God can do anything. Isn't that encouraging? Let's have a word of prayer. And you ask God to meet their needs of the brother and sister of the Lord and their children, you lay the hands on them and they go in peace. And you show them the door and say, hey, be blessed, be warm, be filled. James is saying, what good is your faith? This hungry family didn't need a sermon. They needed supper. They didn't need to sit in your living room, but in your kitchen. They needed you to open your refrigerator, not your Bible. (laughs) Now, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with sharing the word with people in need. The problem comes when you don't heed the word that you're sharing to meet that need that that God brought to you. If you don't, you can be one that perhaps verbally you prayed very powerfully, impressively. You might have even stirred that person in his inner being. But if you say, God bless you, have a good day, see you later, what have you really done? Your profession is empty. You cast out upon the integrity of your own faith that you claim to hold. That's why John so clearly laid it out for us in 1 John three seventeen and 18. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So if faith is not expressed in our lifestyle, then according to God's word, it may be a dead faith. Now to etch this lesson of James even further into our hearts. One man has written a satirical version of Matthew 25. Remember Matthew 25 where Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This person writes, 
I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was in prison and you crept off quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. Tragically, so many say, if it's convenient for me to help that person, then great. If it's inconvenient, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to hassle with it. Let somebody else take care of it. Let the church, send them to the church. Really, to be indifferent or apathetic towards the needs of the souls of who Jesus died for is, is blasphemy. Because Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And it says, when did we do this, Lord? Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it to one of these little ones, you did it to me. Not said it, you've done it. Again, that's why James says in verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Can't survive, it won't. So again, if faith is not expressed in our lifestyle, then according to James, it may be dead faith. So we need to check, we need to examine our hearts to see where our faith is at this morning. Because I know in a great many churches today, there are a lot of people that just show up on Sunday morning, they, they, but really they're just wasting their time because even though they go to church and get the right biblical information, it never produces the right actions in their lives. And week after week they go, but, but year after year nothing has changed in their life at all. Their faith is lacking because there's no action. So James is saying, if you truly believe in God, if you say you believe in prayer, if you say you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and there's no evidence in your life of a changed life, then your faith must be dead. This brings us to point number two, a demonic faith. Look at verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So James is saying, listen, you think you're doing well because you say you have faith. You say you believe the Bible. You say there's one God. That's good. You say you have a, a real grasp of theology and your study of the scripture and how, how you're able to quote it. Lay it all on the line, understand it in standable fashion and, uh, before somebody. Maybe you say you got a good grasp of your expositional and analytical exegesis of hermeneutics. Well, good for you. Whoopie-doo, la-di-da-la. I mean, even the demons believe, he says, and tremble. See, James is cutting to the heart here. He's laying it out in no uncertain terms. He's anticipating the arguments and disagreements as he goes along. And he says, yeah, okay, so you say you believe, but even believe the demons believe and they tremble. See, James wanted to shock the complacent readers, so he uses demons as an illustration. Now, today, more than ever, we need to realize the reality and activity of demons all around us. The devil never slows down, never stops. Think about when our Lord was ministering here on the earth. He often cast out demons. He, uh, he gave that power to his disciples. Paul often confronted demonic forces in his ministry. In Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 20, he admonished the early Christians to claim God's protection and defeat the spiritual forces of wickedness. None of that has changed over the years other than we are not recognizing the demonic activity going on in the life in, in many of our politicians and world leaders today. Now, it may surprise you to know that demons and the devil himself are neither atheists nor agnostics. The devil and the demons believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. The devil and the demons believe the Bible is the very word of God. The devil and the demons believe that Jesus Christ is coming back very soon. So you can say in a very limited sense that the devil and his demons are very orthodox in their beliefs. By, the, by that I mean they're orthodox in that they do believe the right things about God, but it's a demonic faith. It's not the kind of faith that is impacting their lives. Because notice what kind of reaction this demonic faith brings to the demons. They tremble. Even the demons believe and tremble. In fact, it's an interesting word for tremble. It's a word bristle, to bristle. It's a kind of horror that brings chills to your spine to make the hair on the back of your neck just raise up. Have you ever been that frightened? I mean, not only do the demons respect Jesus, they are freaked out. They are they, they're just bristle. They're terrified of him and his incredible power and his authority. 
many occasions in the Bible where people were possessed by demons, uh, they would, the Jesus would, you know, they would bow down before Christ. Mark 3.11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, You are the Son of God. I think about the story about the guy that used to hang around in the graveyard, in the cemetery. And he would cut himself and he would moan and scream. And they'd have him in chains, but, but he would break those chains. This man was possessed with multiple demons. Jesus shows up, and the demon inside of that man caused him to, to fall down. Christ demanded to know their name. They said, Legion, for we are many. And then they say this, Please don't send us to judgment before our time. They recognized his authority. And then they requested from Jesus, Would it be possible to be cast out of this man into that herd of pigs over there that, that are eating? Jesus said, Sure. And he cast the demons into the pigs. These poor pigs then went off the side of the cliff, committed mass suicide. They fell to their own ruin. Demon-possessed pigs or deviled ham, whatever you want to prefer. The point is that these demons recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And now the devil and the demons, they tremble before the Lord because they know the Lord's power. They know his authority. Now here's the big issue. Do they believe in the sense that James is describing? Do they trust him? Do they cling to him? Of course not. Here's what James is saying. He's saying you can know the right things about God and not necessarily believe in the biblical sense in God. Because true belief in Jesus Christ will result in a radical change in your attitude and lifestyle. True belief in Jesus Christ will bring forth fruit in your life. James says this, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And this brings us to point number three, a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith is faith that is so real, so powerful, that it does result in a changed life. A dynamic faith is an act of faith. And so to make his point once again, this is the second time now, he says in verse 20, But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? That word for foolish man is defined as empty, devoid of truth, empty-headed, an airhead, okay? James says, you're an airhead, you're empty, devoid of truth, if you say you have faith without your works. Because real faith, dynamic faith, is more than affirming verbally, it's more than agreeing mentally, it's more than just a positive attitude. You know, a lot of people think think that today. Oh, you just have to think wonderful thoughts, positive thoughts, have a positive mental outlook. And most of all, you need to believe in yourself. Have faith in yourself. That'll get you through. And there are many people today who have defined faith as a positive mental attitude. Listen, faith is only as good as its object you place it faith in. The man in the jungle bowed before an idol made of stone and trusted to help him, but he'll never receive help from that idol. No matter how much faith that person may generate, it is not directed at the right object. It's going to accomplish nothing. A lot of sincere people will tell you they have faith, but the big question is, faith in who? Faith in what? We are not saved by faith in faith. We are saved by faith in Christ alone as revealed through His Word alone. Because a dynamic faith is based upon the Word of God. It involves the whole man. Dead faith, you know, touches only the intellect. Demotic faith involves both the mind and the emotions. But dynamic faith involves the will. They are willing, if you will, to get into that wheelbarrow and go across that tightrope. The person, the whole person plays a part in a true saving faith. The mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, and the will acts upon the truth. I think about the men and the woman named in Hebrews chapter 11. This called the hall of faith in that chapter. They were people of action. God spoke and they obeyed. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. Let me say that again. Faith is not believing in spite of the evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. Because true, sa- true saving faith uh, leads to action. It's going to show itself in your practical day-to-day living. This is the basic principle for everything, uh, everywhere, and it's true in every case. Multiple illustrations of this. Let me give you one more, a farming illustration, okay? The farmer gets up early in the morning and says, you know what, I know that if I plant corn, I'm going to get corn. If I till the ground, prepare the soil, plant just the right seed, I'm going to get corn. 
good corn, sweet corn. I know how to do it. And I know it will grow. And I have faith that it will grow. It will grow when I plant it. I know. Fine. Get out there and plant the corn. You've got to do something about it. If we say we have faith in anything and we do nothing about it, our faith is no amount of good. Faith without action, again, is useless. Now, James, he wants to really make his point. So he appeals to two well-known Old Testament personalities. Abraham, the patriarch, the most powerful example that James could have come up with, and Rahab, the prostitute. I mean, he could not have picked more two people no further apart, no con- with contracting, uh, contrasting backgrounds. But he picked people so different in character to clearly show that no one, whatever his or her condition, uh, nationality or class in society, has ever had real faith without results. Both strong illustrations of dynamic saving faith since both of them heard and received the message of God through his word. First, let's look at Abraham. We know Abraham was revered as a man of faith who enjoyed a close relationship with God. Nothing would be considered legitimate truth if it contradicted something that Abraham did, his experience. So James says, first and foremost, look at verse 21 and 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? So clearly the life of Abraham proves that works have always been indispensable to spiritual maturity. The connection between faith and works was not some new idea being introduced in the New Testament. James points specifically to Abraham's willingness to offer Isaac on the altar to the Lord found in Genesis chapter 22, arguably the most, you know, the greatest act of faith ever by a human being. When God told Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Man, Abraham faced this huge dilemma. First, Isaac was his his long-awaited beloved son. Second, Isaac was the son who fulfilled God's long-standing promise to Abraham to give him uh, innumerable, innumerable descendants and bless all the nations through him. So Isaac was Abraham's covenant son, and now God was telling Abraham, go kill your son. Now, We don't know what went through Abraham's mind the night before the sacrifice. We do know this. He got up early the following morning and got up, went right to Mount Moriah. Genesis 22, 5 says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, there was a positive mental attitude there. Abraham said, We will go up and worship, and then we will come back to you. He had the faith that they were coming back. But he still had to put his faith into action, which he did. Abraham and Isaac went up to the mountain. Isaac asked where the sacrificial lamb was. Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And that was the last word either of them spoke until Abraham tied Isaac up and laid him on that altar and raised his knife. And as a, as a dad, as a father, I can easily imagine Abraham wondering each step of the way, God, when are you going to intervene? God, when, when are you going to stop this? When, when are you going to change the plan? But see, Abraham, he didn't stop. Abraham had obeyed by getting up. He went to Mount Moriah, building an altar, laying Isaac on the wood. He even reached for his knife. And still God had not shown up. Why? Because God's command was not just to go up with a good mental attitude, travel to the mountain and lay Isaac on the altar. The command was to kill Isaac. Offer him as a burnt offering to God, the ultimate act or work of faith. And it wasn't until Abraham took that ultimate step by starting to plunge a knife down into Isaac that the angel of the Lord stopped him. And I bet it was one like that, just just stopped him. Only at that point did the pronouncement of Abraham's justification by works come in. Because at that point, this is what God said in Genesis 22:12. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. James puts it this way in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Without one radical act of obedience, Abraham's faith was justified. It was demonstrated for the whole world to see all the way down to our generation, that his faith was not just a a set of beliefs in his head, wasn't just a positive attitude. 
Abraham's faith in God caused him to do the works of God. And God says, now I know that you're serious about me. Now I know that you love me more than anything or anyone else. Now I know your faith is for real. Think about this. The whole time this was going on, God had this ram caught over in this thicket, you know. But it was the quietest ram in, in the history of Israel because it didn't budge. Until Abraham had gone all the way in obedience. Then God provided the lamb, which we know all points to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. But here's the point James is making. Abraham was justified by his works. His faith was perfected because it proved to be a working faith, an active faith, a dynamic faith. Now I know there are those, and this is where the argument comes in, to say, but doesn't the Apostle Paul contradict everything James is saying here? After all, did not Paul say in Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith and not by the deeds of the law. And then Romans 4.2, For if Abraham were justified by works, his were of to glory, but not before God. What does James say? Abraham was justified by works. And you got those people out there who go, See, 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 I told you the Bible's full of contradictions. It's full of contradictions. There's one right there. Shut up. No, it's not. You see, we're dealing with different situations here, with different groups of people asking different questions. Paul was coming against those who said, you're saved by your works. That, that, that the, the work of Christ on the cross wasn't sufficient. You know, the, these people are saying, you still got to do these good works to be saved. James is saying, it's by your works, you're proving you're saved. Paul actually puts this both together for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 10. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, he says, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he goes on in verse 10 to say, But we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared before him that we should walk in them. Paul is saying, if you really have faith, it will result in works in your life. See, here's what it comes down to. Faith justifies me before God, but works justify me before man. You can't see my faith any more than I can see your faith. I can say I have faith, but how do you know that I have faith? How do you even know that I'm a Christian? Because I stand behind the pulpit, because I can quote a few verses from the Bible. Anyone can do that. Hopefully, if you know me at all, you would say I'm a Christian because you have seen the evidence in my life. And I would look to you with that same conclusion. There's something in the way that you live your life and your priorities, and your focus, that would cause me to say, I truly believe that you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. So you are justified before me as a Christian by your actions, because I, I can't see your heart. Now, it works the opposite way as well. You can do all sorts of good works, but you'll never be justified by your works if your heart has never been changed, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to begin with. Again, your faith justifies you before God, but your works justify you before people. People can't see our hearts. All they see is our works. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not let your light so shine before men that they might hear your good words and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's your works. So we must balance this. We must realize that we do not do good works to somehow earn the grace of God, nor do we involve ourselves in religious practices to somehow appease God or, or merit His blessing. To do that would be a works-based salvation. And the Scriptures is against that completely. We need to be careful to not think, just because I've done certain things, now I'm going to earn the blessings of God. I went to church today on Sunday, and then Sunday night, and Wednesday night, Thursday night. Read my Bible X amount of times. Now I'm going to find God's blessing. No. I'm not saying it's wrong to do those things. Those are good things to do. But if you're doing those things so that you can somehow earn the blessings from God, you're missing the point. Because even when we fall short, even when we fail, God still loves you and accepts you in, in, in Christ because of His work on the cross. Because the Bible says you, you have been made acceptable in the Beloved. I have been, I, I stand rather righteous before God. Because I've been justified, which means he has imputed his righteousness into my overdrawn bank account. I stand in Christ just as I've not sinned, justified. Now, in recognition of that, 
realizing that in spite of my shortcomings and sins and failures, God accepted me, God forgiven me, God justified me. I want to do good works. I want to show my appreciation, my love back for all he's done for me. Not to earn his blessings, but as a recognition for what I've received of his blessings. Not to get something from him, but because I've received so much from him. That's an important distinction. See, this principle is important for us to understand. Abraham's life shows that from the very beginning, God intended Abraham's faith and our faith to be accompanied and verified by our works. Now, one more example that James gives before we close, a dynamic faith, the example of Rahab. Look at verse 25. Likewise was, not, likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. That's a big step from a patriarch to a prostitute. But Rahab's life proves the same point as Abraham's. Rahab demonstrated her faith when she received and hid the two Israelites who came to check out Jericho for Joshua before Israel attacked the city as part of its conquest of Canaan. And Rahab, is, as she's talking to these spies... She declared her faith in God, in the God of Israel, when she said this in Joshua 2.11, that the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. At that point, we can say that Rahab was saved. She had a New Testament faith that sent to the Word. But she, she put her faith in Jehovah for salvation when she took in those spies. But James goes on to say that Rahab was justified by works when she hid the men in her home and then sent them safely on their way. So the verbal came first, then the action. And Rahab's reward for her working faith was that her whole family was spared from Israel's uh, attack when they marched around Jericho and brought the place crashing down. So like God's friend Abraham, Rahab was justified by her works. Her faith in God transformed her eternity, but her act of faith in protecting the spies preserved her and her family down in history. So here's the point. If you want to see life's change on earth, your faith needs to be faith that works. It's always been the case, will always continue to be the case. Finally, James has had some very strong statements about the importance of real faith in, in the Christian life. But now we all come to verse 26. This is the third time he says it, and this is the most powerful statement of all. James clearly and plainly for the third time says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith that has no works has no life to it. See, just as a physical body dies and is dead, it was once alive, likewise, a faith that was once alive can be dead. James is saying a true Christian can lose the effective reality of their faith. Their lives can stop reflecting their beliefs. You know, physical death occurs when the Spirit leaves the body. The Spirit is the life of the body. When you're accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Lord, you became spiritually alive. What then causes spiritual faith to die? If your faith is dead, if it isn't making itself apparent in any actions or behaviors, if your spiritual get-up-and-go has got up and went... If you're living a defeated life instead of a victorious life, it's not that you've never had a spiritual life if, in fact, you've truly trusted Christ alone for salvation. The problem is that, that that life that keeps faith functioning is no longer operating in your life. If you want the body of your faith to get up and out of that spiritual coffin, so to speak, you have to put the spirit, you have to put the life back into it. Put, put feet to your, to your words. Put action back into your faith. Saying to a needy brother, go in peace, be warmed and filled, is not good enough. Having the right belief system in your head is not good enough when the discussion is, is about putting your faith to work. Having a good mental attitude falls short. If you want dynamic faith, we must step out of our comfort zones and do something about it. Our faith and works must go together hand in hand. You try to pit one against the other. It's like debating the question, what part of a wing of a plane is more important, the left side or the right side. I mean, the, the, both working together provides balance. You get rid of one of them and, and you're out of balance. It's going to affect you, probably result in your death. You need both to stay, stay in the air to reach your destination. Faith and works working together. Faith in God resulting in works will result in a balanced Christian life. They're essentially inseparable. I want to close with this. It's a, a, a powerful Old Testament account which God saw faith at work. It's a well-known confrontation between David and Goliath. So think about this. 
My question this morning is, do you think it was David's faith or the stone that killed Goliath? It was both. That stone would have done no damage if it had not been thrown by faith by David, trusting in God's power. But if David, if all he got out there to me was to go out to Goliath and say, listen, oh yeah, let me tell you, God is big. He's so big, he's so high you can't get over him. He's so low you can't get under him. He's so wide you can't get around him. He is the rose of Sharon. He's the bright and morning star. He is in Goliath. go, and you're not. He just smacked him. Squish. He would have done away with him. No, David was victorious over Goliath because he not only believed God, he picked up some stones, he put it on a slingshot, and he swung it at the giant. David's readiness to use his slingshot, along with his faith in God, allowed him to bring down Goliath and help pave his way to the throne of Israel. I think we need to re-examine whether we're really in the faith or not. And if we are, then we need to re-examine our lives to see if we really are looking for opportunities to show our faith by our works. Maybe God is looking for, uh, to show you your faith by your works in speaking out of the school board meeting. Maybe at a city council meeting. Maybe God is asking you to show your faith by your works by going next door to your neighbor and seeing if they have any need that you can meet. Maybe God is asking you to show your faith by your works by inviting your neighbor to church with you next week. Maybe God is asking you to show your faith by your works by stepping up and getting involved in ministry here at the church or giving to the Lord financially through your tithes and gifts and offerings. What is God asking you to do? Is there an area in your life where your faith is either dead in terms of doing good or only half alive? What God truly wants from you is faith that works. Our, our, our message to the watching world must be more than what we say. It's been said, you know, preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. We preach in the way in which we live. Charles Spurgeon, a sermon he preached 155 years ago, so it tells us it's still relevant today. He put it this way. The Christian serves the Lord, his Lord, simply out of gratitude. He has no salvation to gain, no heaven to lose. Now, out of love to the God who chose him and who gave so great a price for his redemption, he desires to lay out himself entirely to his master's service. One more quote. I like this one from Oz Guinness. He wrote a book called God in the Dark, The Assurance of Faith Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt. He writes this. Stress obedience apart from faith and you produce legalism. Stress faith apart from obedience, and you produce cheap grace. For the person who becomes a Christian, the moment of comprehension leads to one conclusion only, commitment. At that point, the cost has been counted, and a contract for discipleship has been signed. The decision is irreversible. It is not faith going a second mile. It is faith making its first full step, and there is no going back. Now, as we've looked at these verses today. Maybe some of you that have joined us would say, well, I've always thought I had faith, but maybe I really don't. Maybe I actually have a, a devil's faith. It's orthodox. T's are crossed, the I's are dotted. It's correct. But there's no evidence in my life. I don't think I have real faith. I don't think I have the kind of faith God requires. In fact, when you get down to it, I don't even think I have assurance of salvation. Listen, you can have assurance of salvation right now simply by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ in that biblical sense. You can leave here knowing that your sin is forgiven by believing in Him. But what does it mean to believe in Him? It means to rely on, cling to, trust in Jesus Christ. You know, the word believe is made up of two words, be and live. That pretty much sums up what this is saying. Faith helps us to be spiritually, but after we receive that life, it receives, you know, that life, it receives expression in Christian works and deeds. Be and live. I put my faith and trust in Christ, then I, then I live it out. But understand this. It's not you living it out. It's Christ living through you. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ that does that work in your life when you surrender your life to him. So if that's your desire this morning, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, real faith, true faith, Lasting faith. You've got to surrender to the Lord. Say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Turn from that sin. Commit your life to Him. You'll have salvation. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
We're told in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made for salvation. It's as simple as that. Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ comes from your heart. But it has to come from your heart. Because Jesus, uh, believing that God paid the ultimate sacrifice for, for your sin, for my sin, by allowing his son to take the penalty that, that we so rightly deserve. And you have to acknowledge that. Say, God, you did this work for me. And you, re- you, you say that, you believe that, your sin will be forgiven. God will place his Holy Spirit inside of you. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to give you the strength to do the works that he's called you to do, to live out your faith. And then he promises us heaven and eternity with him. It's a win-win situation. It doesn't get any better than that. So as soon as we're done in just a moment, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you, come up and please talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors, Joey. I think Sean's left. He's going on vacation. But, but, uh, uh, but uh, uh, talk to one of us. We'd love to give you, or Matt, talk to Matt. You know, we'd love to give you a Bible. Let you know what it means to follow Christ. One of the elders at the church. Anyone that's a believer. If you don't know faith in Christ, we want you to have faith in Christ. If you need prayer for any reason, let us know that as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. Lord, sometimes you know, I think of it as, as just getting that, that workout by a trainer. Sometimes we end up just seeing areas of our lives that, that, that hurt, Lord, that are stretching us. But I know that it's good for us. Father, help us to live out what we believe. Lord, help us to show the world our faith by our works. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit to do just that. Lord, help us to remember your word where it says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to good for his good pleasure. Lord, it's you working in my life to do those things, to show that work of faith that you've already done in my heart. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they would not leave here without making that commitment today, taking that step of faith to believe what you did for them upon the cross. Help them, Lord to make that commitment to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and do one last song together.